Well, good morning. I'm Sean, the lead pastor here. And as Marty mentioned, next week we're going to be starting a series on the Old Testament wisdom book called Ecclesiastes. But today, as kind of like a New Year's thing, we're going to look at what is a simple and yet profound concept of God's love. And very often for those of us in church world, and I'll be primarily addressing um, those of you who are Christians already, God's love is one of those things that we tend to think, yeah, we got that. But, but I want to kind of push back a little bit and ask, do we? Do we really? You know, this is the time of year and lots of people do resolutions. We don't do those in the Sawyer's house because like Marty said, we aren't very good at the whole try harder, do harder, be more ethic. So that's just not our family culture. So we don't do those. But I do want to um, kind of, at the very beginning of 2022, give us a good reminder of God's love. I want to recommend a book to you as is a you know, thing that Presbyterians like to do. Um, this is called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. This book changed me. I took the officers through this book uh, as a part of our devotional for our, our officers' meetings uh, throughout the year this year, and it hopefully affected and changed them, although doing it in little 15-minute bursts was kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant, and I apologize. I didn't write it. Anyway, Sinclair Ferguson wrote this book called The Whole Christ. You're going to want to write that down and remember this one. This is a really good book. And there's one point in this book that just messed me up. And it was this. He pointed out several times that don't fall into the error of seeing God the Father as aloof, austere, as if it's the work of Jesus to make the Father love us. No, the Father sent the Son because the Father loved us. Now, I had that right theologically. I'd been ordained for a long time when I read this book. I mean, after all, I mean, I know, and you probably know, that the gospel is, of course, the Father's idea, but practically for years, I ministered as if the Father was only loving because of Jesus, and it messed up my Christian walk, and it will yours. If we aren't grounded in the incredible love of God the Father for us, We'll be prone to idolatry. Our hearts will seek to find love somewhere else. We'll take this thirst for love somewhere else. To help you understand what I mean, I want to share with you a quote from Christian scholar James K.A. Smith. There'll be a slide. It's also on the front of your bulletin if you want to follow along, along there. It's a little long. He says this. It says, Like existential compasses and embodied homing beacons, our loves are pulled magnetically to some north towards which our hearts have been calibrated. Our actions and behavior are pulled out of us by this attraction. In case, like me, you need the sock puppet version of that quote, if we aren't secure in God's love, our loves take us elsewhere. To quote that old song, I think Johnny Lee, right? We're looking for love in all the wrong places. So let me ask you, what's your north? What is the compass needle of your heart pointing to? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scripture, that's what the Bible would call an idol. You don't have to be dancing around a totem to be an idolater. And to help us see how insidious it can be for Christians and how God's love conquers our wandering hearts, we're going to look at the Old Testament prophet Hosea. So Hosea is is this guy who prophesied to a very interesting time. He was about 750 years before the birth of Jesus. So remember from history class, uh, the Black Death, 
you know, the big pandemic people talked about before COVID, that was about 750 years ago. See, so that distance before Jesus, this guy was preaching. He was called to minister to a morally bankrupt society, a compromised church, but a relatively prosperous people. Israel at the time was fully engaged in the most popular religious movement of the day called Baal worship, or as we like to say in the South, Baal. This was a land of farmers, and you needed your crop to grow. And so you needed a fertility god. And Baal, he was it. Baal had a very attractive, user-friendly worship style. He was a fertility god, and he needed to be reminded to be fertile. He needed to be inspired to be fertile. And so in the Baaltist church, what you would do is farmers would come and they would engage in an act of fertility with a cult prostitute. As you can imagine, Baal's men's ministry was just exploding. Parents were so excited, their young men wanted to attend worship. And into this idolatrous mess, God calls Hosea. God had described his relationship with his people as a marriage. We're familiar in the New Testament with the church being the bride of Christ. That's an Old Testament image as well. God said, Israel is my wife by covenant. It was a very well-known image. And God comes to Hosea and says, my people are cheating on me with Baal. So he instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute, probably one of the cult prostitutes from Baal. And God tells him, she will cheat on you but you are to love her anyway because love is a verb like breathing. It's not something into which you fall, a noun like mud. So Hosea obeys and loves his wife. And his life will be an object lesson about God's love because God continues to love his people even in the face of their unfaithfulness. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up on one of, so one of the sermons that Hosea gives, where he is speaking for God to the nation. And it's found on page 10 of your order of worship. There'll be a slide as well. We'll look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. <clears throat> this is God's word. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, 
and they shall be remembered by name no more. Well, let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to one of these passages in the Old Testament, Lord, that shows your ferocity, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this, the ferocity of your love. We pray that by your Spirit you would reveal to us the idols of our heart that we go after. And we pray, Lord, that your ferocious love will draw us back to you. We pray you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our theme for today, just to jump right in, is going to be this. God sacrificially loves unlovely people, like us. We're going to jump right in by looking at our wandering hearts. So if you had asked one of these ancient Israelites why they were abandoning their God, the one who delivered them out of Egypt, the one who gave them the land, why are you doing this? They would have said, we're not abandoning him. We still do all the religious stuff that Moses commanded, but we just add this Baal stuff too because he's just so relevant and he's so practical. Just like we Christians do with the loves of our heart, don't we? We never say, oh yeah, I'm going to abandon this and go after this. We just add this love because it just feels so fulfilling. What's the big deal? Well, God indicates it's a big deal starting off in verse 8 where he basically says, look, I gave you everything and she gave it to another. Feel the emotion in that text. There's pain in those words. God had provided for his people, but they gave credit to another all while enjoying his blessing. Someone ever taken credit for your work? It stinks, doesn't it? Or boys and girls, young people, you ever got blamed for something you didn't do? You ever had a chore that uh, you did, your sister took credit for? Yeah. The God of the Bible understands, boys and girls. He's felt that too. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. And the, their their uh, version of verse 8 says this. My people are my wife, and they have not learned that I give them everything. Instead, they look at my gifts and say, thank you, Baal. That's terrible. And so what's God's response? In verse 9, God says, I'm going to take away your blessings. I'm going to take away your prosperity. In verse 10, then he says, I'm going to shame you publicly. And there's this weird interplay in the whole book of Hosea that we've got to be mindful of. You never quite know for sure. Is God talking to Israel right now, or is Hosea talking to his wife? It's purposely vague, because in most cases, it's both. In other parts of the book, we know for sure that Hosea actually took his wife, who had been publicly cheating on him for money, he takes her to the public square, he strips off her pretty clothes to shame her. Now that's shocking to us, but let's remember this is not a modern Western culture, this is an ancient Near Eastern culture, it's what sociologists call a shame culture, and so the best way to think about shame is, you know that old game you've heard about, hot potato, that no one's ever actually played but you heard about, right? Okay, think of the potato as shame, Right? We think of shame as something kind of emotional and ethereal. To an ancient Near Eastern shame culture, it was tangible and sticky. You got it, it was on you, you wanted it off, you got to give it to somebody else. So they had a shame ceremony where you would take the one who shamed you and you would do something super shameful, like strip them naked and walk away from them. And in that moment, you were literally taking the shame off of yourself and dumping it on them and walking away. It was a known ceremony. Everybody did it. It was a very common method to transfer shame to another. Hosea did it in front of town. 
But God does this to his people in front of the nations. Assyria is going to invade in a few years from this text and wipe out most of the people in Hosea's day. They're gone. A, a bit, the rest, a bit later, Babylon, you probably heard of Babylon, they come and they carry the rest of the people away as captives. God's people as an independent political nation from that point are gone. They're done. It was a public shaming on a national, even international scale. Why would God do such a thing? You know, that's actually the original question. In the creation narrative, when the serpent tricks Eve, he basically asks her, what kind of God would deny you pleasure if he really loves you? Hosea is one of the places where we get an answer. Verse 11 tells us that God will not let his people wallow in false idols, even when it seems so good, even when it feels so fulfilling. You see, we're hardwired to seek love, and so our Creator thwarts our attempts to settle for less than his robust, thick, fulfilling love that he offers himself. I mean, think about Let's think about Christmas time eating. We're coming out to that point where we're exiting the holidays, and for many people who do resolutions, it's very often uh, they're involved with something about, you know, smaller sized clothes, right? Let's, let's fit into the smaller sized clothes after all the holiday eating. And y'all, y'all are crazy about this stuff. I, I, thank you, by the way, as a food addict. Um, y'all flooded the church office with carbs for like the last month, and we're just super grateful. Thank you. You know, um, I got to buy new clothes now. But anyway, holiday eating is awesome, isn't it? Right? And you let your kids have more treats than normal. At least at our house, there's usually not cakes and cookies around. Like they're always around in December, and it's great. But is it loving as a parent to let them eat that way all the time? But they enjoy it so much. It makes them so happy. Yeah, but is it loving or do we have to like, this is a vegetable. Try it, right? Is it an act of hate to do that? When we limit ourselves and our kids on all the junk food? No. That's similar to what God is doing here. He's limiting something that, yeah, this seems really fulfilling. Actually, it's not good for you in the long term. Maybe you needed a more intellectually fulfilling way to think about this, okay? So back in the height of the Soviet Union, when Nikita Khrushchev was like banging his shoe on the podium and everything and threatening America, an a army officer who was a well-known atheist, had written pamphlets about atheism and everything, in a private letter to another army officer had a very slight criticism of his government. And promptly, Alexander Solzhenitsyn found himself in prison, in a gulag, for 10 years. He went in an atheist, but he came out a Christian. And if you've ever seen an Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, you've seen this one where he says this about his prison experience. He says, bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life, for there lying on the rotten prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, but the maturing of the soul. You see... If the God of Scripture is real, and if he is truthful, he has shown humanity how to have fulfillment and peace. And so the only truly loving response of the Creator to our attempts to find fulfillment and peace other places is to thwart us. The only way to keep our hearts pointing to the true north he created them to is to thwart our attempts to have all the junk food we want. Instead, he says, no, you need to eat your vegetables. Let's come back in. 
For those of you who have older children, and this is hard, and I, I, I have to do this too, your kids start wandering away from the faith, and maybe they're out of your, out of your house. Don't pray for them to be comfortable. Don't pray for them to be okay. Pray for them to be miserable. Pray for God to thwart their attempts to find happiness outside of him. That's a hard prayer, I know. I, I, I pray it. I get, I get it. But that's the example we see here. That's what he's doing to his people in the book of Hosea. Let's go back to the text. Here's the point. Verse 13, God says this. says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, in the original Hebrew there, that word punish is actually not that punitive. It's more faithful to translate it, kind of deal with, which is how he did for the kids' version. And I point that out because I don't want it to distract you from the main point. The main point is not punish. The main point is look at this metaphor. Israel is a wife who gets all dressed up for another in front of her husband. He watches as she takes that blouse he gave her for her birthday and puts it on. He watches as she takes that necklace he gave her for Valentine's Day, the perfume from Christmas, and she puts it all on so she can go see another man completely disregarding her husband. That's the image of verse 13. You're supposed to feel the yuck right now. You're supposed to feel the uncomfortable. Right, 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 right about here, right? Like, oh, this is icky. And you can sense the pain and betrayal in God's voice here. At the very end of verse 13, he says, you don't even remember me. That's the response of a heart that has loved, not being loved back. Did you know that God reveals himself with such emotional intensity? He's not aloof. He's not dispassionate. The God of the Bible, our creator, shows a deep emotional life. Even more so in his pain, God tells it like it is. This is harsh. Let's go back to verse 12. Notice what she says. These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Notice that word wages. What kind of woman calls the gifts from her lovers wages? God says Israel is a prostitute. It's shocking. It's offensive. And in that culture, these were fighting words. So, let's recap. I'm supposed to be grounding us in the love of God... But so far, I point out that God removes Israel's comforts, publicly shames them, and calls them prostitutes. Where's the love? But see, we have to feel the weight of Israel's betrayal before we can see the depth of God's love in response. Because we too have gone all out for our idols right in front of God. Idols are anything we put our hope and our trust in that's not Jesus Martin Luther used to say, you never violate any commandment 2 through 10 without first violating commandment 1. You want to commit adultery, so you say, I'm going to take this God who says I can't and put him aside, and I'm going to say, I worship this God, and now he lets me violate this commandment. We always commit idolatry before we violate anything else. Whatever it is that makes you feel like you matter, that you have value. If it's not Jesus then it's an idol. And God thwarts the attempts of our wandering hearts to go after those idols so we will see God's tenacious love for us. So if you're paying attention, if you're following along in the text, typically you know, there, there's a twist here. 
Because typically, when spouses argue, other spouses, not you guys, I know, when, when spouses argue, what happens is the one doing all the talking in the argument tends to get to an emotional climax, right? They've laid out their grievances, and then they angrily proclaim what is going to change. Now, I don't want to say that God has been ranting, but he has been doing all the talking so far. And we expect this angry climax of judgment after verse 13. Here comes what verse 13 is. He's finally come to the climax. He's laid out his grievances. Now, here comes what he's going to do. And there's even a therefore to tell us it's coming. Here comes the whoop, and God's going to let his people have it. But that's not who God has revealed himself to be. Let's look at verse 14. How does he conclude? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That word for allure there means to powerfully attract, to charm, even seduce in some context. Is that weird feeling back? Right? God is a seducer? And in the Old Testament, Taking someone to the wilderness is not the woodshed. It's a place of protection and comfort. So God's solution to unfaithfulness, God's solution to cheating on him is not punishment. It's affection, romance. Boys and girls, I have some friends in a different city. He's a soldier, and they have this really funny way of telling each other how committed they are to each other. You guys want to hear it, boys and girls? They look at each other, and they say, no one's getting out of this marriage alive. <laughs> right? Isn't that great? <laughs> I love that. And that's kind of what God says here. No one's getting out of this marriage alive. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls in there, verse 14. <clears throat> God says this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love them anyway. Baal tempted them away, so I'm going to love them back. I'll take them to our favorite spot, and I will remind them of my love. See, God is a spouse who refuses to stop loving. He answers our wandering hearts with his tenacious love. In a world of cancel culture and trigger warnings, where our performance is often the key to our acceptance, Christianity holds that our peace and our security is in the tenacity of God's love for us, not in the depths of our performance for him. Oh, if you struggle as a Christian, if you struggle with shame, if you struggle with insecurity, you're probably looking to your religious performance rather than God's faithfulness as the basis of your hope. Instead of looking at your efforts, look at how God pours out his heart in love to win back an unfaithful people who do not love him well. We don't really get the tenacity of this love, do we? It's very easy to hold this at an intellectual, yes, God is love kind of level. It's supposed to be in our guts. I mean, this is the kind of love that loves the unlovely. I mean, let the weight of this metaphor of Hosea going after his prostitute wife as a picture of God going after us, his wayward people. Let that sink in. I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, to love a pure, fresh, attractive young bride. And it's quite another matter, isn't it, to love a beat-up, used-up, ragged, old, cheating prostitute. And Hosea shows us that such is the thick love of God towards broken people with wandering hearts like us. It's the love seen, of course, supremely in Jesus Christ who entered our world, 
lived in our junk, and even when we rejected him, he went to the cross to bring us back. In the gospel, we see this thick love of God. And we desperately need this love, don't we? Our neighbors need this love. I've used this before. Um, Imposter syndrome was a a word that sociologists talked about for decades, but it came really popular in the um, pop culture, I guess you'd call it, about three or four years ago with the New York Times article that defined it as people who believe they are not intelligent, capable, or creative despite evidence of high achievement. This article went on to say that in a survey, 50% of tech workers felt this way about themselves, that they were imposters. They were successful, they were accomplished, they were promoted, and yet they feel that it's all luck and not skill. They don't feel worthy, they feel like imposters, and they are desperately afraid of being found out. It's not just you, in other words. Lots of people feel like phonies. And here's why I bring this up for this image in Hosea. Instead of feeling like an imposter, God's tenacious love proves our worth. Do you believe God loves you like that? You know, as I I mentioned at the beginning, there's a tendency in church world, some of you may even default to this, that this idea that God the Father is an aloof taskmaster, and that it's only through the constant nagging of gentle Jesus that God is nice to us. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Let this picture from Hosea of God's wild, robust love cast that false understanding far, far from you. Hosea shows us a God who loves even when not loved in return. A God who takes away distractions so we can swim in his love is what he tells us in verse 14. And then verse 15, he says, he'll then return all the blessings he took away, but then he loads them up with hope. That's the glorious, tenacious love of God. Here's how we put it for the kids in their verse 15. God says, then I'll give back all the stuff and I'll remind them of how much we used to love each other. Then, like when we were first married, they'll be hopeful in my love. Oh, boys and girls, students, is it better to wake up every day hopeful or scared? Hopefully you're thinking hopeful, right? That's the difference between living in hope and not living in hope. You wake up every day feeling good about that day. And Hosea tells us that God loves us so much, he wants us to wake up every day in hope. What if that were actually true? What if you believed that? Whatever issues or trauma you have from your past that make you think of God as an aloof taskmaster, let these images from Hosea give you a different view of God. He is an embarrassingly lavish lover. And that's right where this text ends in verse 16. Look with me at verse 16. God says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now, Baal is a proper name, but it's also the Hebrew word for master. And I believe right here it should not be translated as a name, but as that. It makes much more sense for God to say, you've been calling me master. You've seen me as a taskmaster, so you went after Baal. But no, you're going to now call me my husband because you see my love. Oh, Christian or not, deep down, what do you think about God? Is he angry? Is he easy to set off? Is he uninteresting? Is he distant? 
See, in church world, we tend to default either to God as my husband or God as my master. And so many of us default to a God who's a master, don't we? God doesn't reveal himself as a master to placate. He reveals himself as a spouse who loves. He wants us to see him as a doting husband, not a strict boss. God shows us a passionate, tenacious, pursuing love. He loves us even more than we love ourselves. He's not ignorant of our faults. He's not ignorant of our failures, and yet it's a love that gushes all over us. Rest in this love. So as we wrap this up, that's a pretty big claim for me to say that about God's love. How can I make such a claim? I want to go back to verse 10 and show you how this is in the text itself. We talked about the, the uh, shame transferring ceremony. Verse 10 is talking about that. It says this. It says, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. So we could get all huffy about God shaming his people, or we could see the more profound truth in those little words, out of my hand. Remember, this shame transfer ceremony was very common, and God messes it up. And the original readers would pick up on, hold on, you shouldn't be holding on to her hand. Think about it. Hosea goes to the public square. He's been shamed because everybody knows his wife is a prostitute. So he strips her naked, and he's supposed to shame her and abandon her and walk away so all the shame is absorbed. But he messes it up, and what's he do? He's holding on to her hand. He says, no one's going to take her out of my hand. He holds on to her, so the shame is not transferred. Actually, in that moment, what happens even more of her shame is now transferred onto him. Let that image soak into your heart. God holds on to his beloved. He is shamed right along with them. Hosea here looks ahead to the gospel where in the supreme act of love, God became human in the person of Jesus. He was stripped naked and shamed on the cross. All of our guilt, all of our shame is transferred onto Jesus who became sin and shame for us because God wants to set us free in his love. See, in Jesus, we see that God doesn't protect himself by shaming us. Instead, God protects us by shaming himself. As we walk around in this imposter syndrome, thinking we're unworthy of love. In the gospel, we see that we are so valued and loved that Jesus chose to suffer for us. Even when we didn't love him well. That's the kind of love that can change the world. Because it changes people. Whatever idol you're looking to this morning, whatever it is you're at the compass of your heart points toward, can it make that promise of sacrifice for you? Turn from that idol. Turn from whatever it is you're looking for as your true north. Forget everything you've called religion. Cast off everything you think you know about Christianity and look to this Jesus on the cross absorbing your shame loving you freely and place your faith and trust in him alone. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, 
Lord, this picture of your love is uncomfortable. Lord, it's easier to keep it at an intellectual distance as a trivial fact. Lord, I pray that even now by your Spirit, you would flood our hard hearts with a sense of how great your love is. That what we sang earlier would be true in our hearts. How deep the Father's love for us. Lord, forgive us, especially those of us in the room who are your children, who are Christians, who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we so often doubt your love. We doubt that you're a kind, loving Father. Lord, would you forgive us? And would you once again give us joy of knowing that you are love, that the gospel was your idea, that it was the Father's will that the Son should suffer and be shamed for us. Father, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, he would be true to his promise to draw all people to himself. Would you do your work of salvation even now, Father? Would you call many from death to life? We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.